everybody and welcome to Off Grid, the Not Really About Crosswords podcast with me, Dave. And me, Void. Hello. And before each episode, we've tackled a cryptic crossword, held it upside down and shaken it to see what falls out of its pockets. As a result, we've each picked a word to talk about and a clue which we like, and we'll explain those to you later. If you don't solve cryptic crosswords, no problem, don't worry. But if you do, and you'd like to keep up with what we might be talking about clues-wise, this time around we solved the Financial Times puzzle number 16955 from Monday the 29th of November 2021 by Steerpike. There's a link in the show notes, so hit pause and go and solve it if you want to do that. Otherwise, just play on, and we'll also later on have a short quiz inspired by the puzzle. And of course, you can't have a quiz without general knowledge. How are you, General? I am very well, thank you. Although a slight tickle in my throat, so I apologise if I accidentally cough at you. So, all right then, let's have our favourite clues for you. If you're not solver, as always, don't panic, because we'll explain how they work a little bit later. General, what was your favourite clue, please? Uh, 19 across. Some advice about bread. Four letters. And Dave? Uh, mine was nine across, which was muck football team about. Six letters. What about yours? And mine was seven down. Haughty socialist embraces love having dropped ecstasy. Five letters. Have a think about those or ignore them. We'll tell you later how they work. But not before we've heard from the general. Which word did you pick from the puzzle to talk about, general? So the word I've chosen to talk about is the word beehives which uh, is very dear to my heart. It is the, my beehives are the reason I gave up being a software developer and uh, went off to do a PhD in pollination biology. And there's so many exciting things to talk about beehives. I, I, I have literally given a talk <laughs> about bees and flowers, which lasts an hour. Uh, which so is... it's going to be a long episode, listeners. Strap yourselves in. <laughs> but I think the, the thing I'd like to talk about in this is the waggle dance. Right, because the waggle dance is an absolutely fabulous, um, fabulous thing. It's it's honeybees rather than any other kind of bee, and they use the waggle dance to tell other bees within the hive where to go for food. And first of all, I think it's absolutely fabulous that um, honeybees can do this with a brain which is less than a million neurons. It's absolutely tiny, but they can still do all of this. And if you think about it, to give somebody a direction to tell to give somebody directions as to where to go you need to give them an angle or a direction in which to go in and a distance from where you are at the moment if you've got an angle and a distance then you'll get to a point yep and the way bees do this is absolutely fabulous the sun gives off polarized light that's how physics works with the sun and there there is this ring of polarized light at 90 degrees to where the sun is. So the sun is in the center of it, if you think anything, a big circle ringing the earth like the equator, if the sun is at the North Pole. And the bees use this plane of polarized light. They can see it with three little eyes that they've got on the top of their head, because bees have five eyes. And they can see this plane of polarized light and they can measure directions and angles from it. So the, the direction bit is the angle against that plane of polarized light. So if, if the plane is over, if the plane is straight ahead of you, then you've got an angle of 30 degrees. You need to go off that way to go and find where your food is. And the direction, well, they can measure distance. So hang on, on the angle, yeah. presumably they have to specify 
30 degrees or whatever clockwise or anti-clockwise. That's quite right. Mm. And they can also compensate for time because obviously the sun moves through the sky. So the angle in the, the, the direction in the morning is not going to be the same as the direction in the afternoon. So this is all very clever. So what's all this got to do with the waggle dance? Well, the waggle dance works by, and I'm, I'm going to do it with the bee going straight upwards during the, it's a sort of figure of eight. And the bee goes waggle, 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 waggle upwards in a straight line. Mm-hmm. And then when she's, um, uh, when she's got to the top of this, which is about an inch long or something like that, then she goes round to her starting position in a circle from top to bottom. And then she'll go up again and round in a circle from top to bottom again. So the waggling bit is like the central waist of your figure of, of your figure eight. Yeah, okay. And then the, the, then the two bits going around the side, your two curves, are the two, like the top and the bottom of your figure eight, if that makes yeah. sense. So it's a figure eight on its side. More like an infinity symbol then. <laughs> uh, yes, what's the, is there a, there's a word for the infinity symbol. Is it a lemniscate? Lemniscate. Yeah, yeah. good word. Ooh, well remembered. But the angle to vertical, which the bees waggle at, corresponds to the angle from the sun. So bees can tell what vertical mm. is. So if they waggle with their figure of eight actually looking like a figure of eight, if they're waggling horizontally rather than vertically, that means it's 90, 90 degrees. degrees. Exactly. It's off to the side somewhere, right? Exactly. And But what about the, what about the distance? What about the time? So that's how long she waggles for. So a quick waggle... That means quite near, and a long waggle means far away. And because you've got this timing information and this distance, inf- or this this angle information based on gravity, then the bees can work out where to go. And I yeah. think that's just fabulous. Hmm. What seems even more fabulous to me is that there must be some degree of margin of error in this. That's very true. I mean, if a bee's got to travel. Uh, I don't know, quarter of a mile from the hive, 30 degrees. And if you're 0.1 degrees off of that, surely you're going to miss the intended target. By you miss the intended target by a, by a fair bit, but most of the time it's a patch of flowers. And bees don't just right. navigate on what their friends tell them. They can also see things and detect uh, chemicals with their antennae. They can smell with their antennae. And also once they've been there, they can uh, they remember where it is by landmarks. And also, if, if their compatriots come, have told them where to go, then that when they get there, they'll fly around a bit and have a, have a decent look for it. Um, they don't just get there and go, well, I can't see anything. There's a, field, there's a massive field of flowers <laughs> next to me, but she said, come here. Um, yeah. So yeah, they, do, yeah. they do use that. So all of that was discovered by a fabulous biologist called Carl von Frisch, and he got the Nobel Prize for this. Um, I think it was back in the 30s. I can't remember exactly when. But there's two further things about this, which I just absolutely love. The first is they've got a little robot bee and put it in the hive and made it waggle dance and said, we think the bees are going to go there. And they do. <laughs> um, so that is that is concrete proof that it actually works, which is just stunning. But not that bees can uh, differentiate between robots and their own species. Well, no, that, that is very true, which is, which is handy. Well, I mean, yeah. there's a certain degree to which you might kind of go, well, we can see this isn't one of us, but it's clearly telling us that there's stuff, you know, mm. half a mile to the northeast. Let's go and have a look, see if it's telling the truth or not. Or if it's a trap. <laughs> Aha. Um, the other thing which is fascinating, I've described all this to you, and, and to be honest, the, the listeners are much more like honeybees are than uh, Void and Dave here, because Void and Dave can actually see me and I'm gesticulating on my webcam. But all of this is done inside beehives, and there's no light inside beehives. Dark. Dark, no light. Yeah, so they do it all by feel. 
Mm. So the whole thing is based on the vibrations that the bees feel over the comb. They can't see it. Oh, that is nuts. A whole yeah. level, extra level of mind blow, isn't it? Yeah. I know. Christ. It's just amazing. Surely the, the, the bee giving the directions is not the only bee that's moving yeah, on so that particular bit of a hive. The ones that, re- that read it are close, okay. close enough to touch, and, they, and sometimes they do touch. Right. Um, yeah, there's so much stuff you can go into on it, and it's just fabulous. So there we go, beehives. I don't know whether the uh, the journal still exists, but there used to be a publication called the British Bee Journal. Yeah, that does still exist. It I, does still I, exist. I am a subscriber. All right. Well, if you had been subscribing in, let's say, the 1950s, then it would probably have been my mum who you wrote to for your subscription because she worked in the oh. subscriptions department of the Bee Journal uh, as one of her first jobs. Huh. After which, if my memory serves me rightly, she went on to run a cinema, at which presumably she must have projected one or two B-movies. Groan. Never get me started on B-movie, the, the cartoon. Well, uh, it, well it, it, she, she would certainly have shown The Swarm. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Not so familiar with that one, perhaps. No, uh, no. No, that, I don't that think is I've a even bit, heard a bit of a B movie in several respects. I think, yeah, I've heard of the band B movie who did Remembrance Day. Right, shall we move on and look at? Uh, I'll I'll explain my clue. If yeah. uh, you remember, it was Muck Football Team about, and it was six letters. Uh, it was a basic charade clue, but quite a neat and plausible surface. Muck was the definition. In this instance, the football team was Manchester United in its usual abbreviated form of Man U. And about was one of the six or so things that the word about usually means in a crossword, in this case, re. So you stick the two together and you get manure for muck. Very nice. Now, after our jaunt to Cannes in an earlier episode, are you about to take us back on the movie festival circuit? Well, I picked the word Sundance from the puzzle, which was defined as festival in the clue. Mm. And in this case, yes, that does refer to the Sundance Film Festival, which is named after anyone? The character in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, Harry Alonzo Longabore, who was nicknamed the Sundance Kid. And the festival is named after that character because in the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the Sundance Kid was played by Robert Redford, who founded that festival. Yes. Right, so we've got that far. Now, why was Harry called the Sundance Kid? I've not seen the film, so I don't know. I have never seen the film. Okay. Uh, My guess is something to do with history. (laughs) Well... Uh, this all happened in the past so yeah you can have 0.1 internet points for that um that character took his nickname from the town of sundance in wyoming which is where he had stolen a gun and a horse and a saddle which he was later arrested and jailed for so he seemed to have named himself after a place where he wasn't a very great success but that there you go that's what he did (laughs) did he name himself or did other people name him was it a nickname given to him or did he take it on i got the impression he called himself that but perhaps not but sundance wyoming the town is named after 
anyone? The film. <laughs> Nicely <laughs> cyclical. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? Oh, that would be neat. It, that would be neat. It's some some Native American tribe, I would imagine. Almost. It's the Sundance ceremony okay. of some Native American tribes in North America and Canada. And it's a week-long community gathering of prayers and healing and cultural transmission of songs and stories and tribal histories. And showing films. Uh, Perhaps. I didn't know much about this, so I thought I'd go and read about it. And I found out that there was a 1960 short film called Circle of the Sun about the Sundance ritual of the Blood Tribe of Alberta, which is part of the Blackfoot Nation. And this film was made by the National Film Board of Canada, and you can watch it online. So I did. And it's mostly narrated by a young man called Pete Standing Alone, who is a member of the tribe. And he recounts that the tribe had decided to let the ceremony be filmed for the first time because they were worried about the tribe's traditions dying out. Right. Some quotes from Pete I wrote down were, the older people think it's important to come here. The young people don't have much to do with the old ways. They don't take part in the ceremonies. The camp's getting smaller every year. In a few more years, there won't be any more Sundance. Ten years, maybe twenty. In time, the old way of life will all be forgotten. So, a bit of a downer, really. I thought it was all quite interesting. I finished watching the film. And then, like you usually get in a very clickbaity kind of way on this page underneath there was a section called related films Mm -hmm. and i almost passed on without glancing at it but my eyes just did catch the fact that one of them one of these related films was called standing alone which was pete's surname and this other film was a more biographical film about him from 1982 and he talks about the other film in it I was just a spectator 25 years ago. I thought these things were just for the old folks. I didn't know then how completely my mind would change. And he goes on to talk about how he began to feel that it was important to keep the traditions alive. And 25 years on from that original film, the Sundance ceremony had survived, presumably in part due to his uh, actions. And he said, it's good to see the young people taking part without embarrassment. And so I was halfway through this film and I I began to think, yeah, okay, I've I've got enough now. I can probably stop. Uh, Just at this point, he was started talking about the fact that he had started making saddles. And he said, it's not every day that you get the chance to make a saddle for a prince. And I thought, oh, what? eh? I might listen a bit further. And apparently this was for a 100th anniversary of, a, of Treaty Number no. 7, which was signed with Queen Victoria. And for the anniversary, the Blackfoot tribe presented a horse and the saddle that Pete made to Prince Charles. <laughs> so we link it back to home. And Pete said, maybe someday I can tell my grandchildren I once made a saddle for a king. He's still waiting for that one. (laughs) Well, yes, there's another short film from 2010 where Pete's rounding up his herd of horses for the final time and lecturing schools about the uh, tribe's traditions. And, yeah, he never got to say those exact words because Pete died in 2018, unfortunately. At time of recording, Charles is still a prince. Yeah. So that's where the Sundance led me. 
It's merry dance. Interesting. So two dances. I'm afraid when you get to mine, there's not going to be any dancing in mine. But uh... <laughs> General, do you want to tell us about the clue you picked? So mine was some advice about bread for letters. <laughs> and then uh, the answer is pitta, um, which is a tip reversed. So some advice about a tip reversed about bread, pitta. I, I really like clues, which where it contains exactly what you need and nothing more. They're really hard to write. Yeah, I think that's always the goal. But, you know, these little extra words just creep in so easily. They do. Dave, what do you want to talk about? Okay, well, at 10 across, we had the word pacifist. And I'm going to throw the passy bit away uh, and just look <laughs> at the fist bit. In the wordplay part of the clue, it was it was clued by hand. Before we get on to the familiar hand sense, I'll note that in Middle English, apparently fist also meant both as a noun and a verb to break wind. It's right. I was I was reading the kind of etymological notes, and it's not entirely. I don't think they are sure themselves. This is the OED whether or not it is related to fart. But if it is, they might both ultimately come from the Latin pedere, which meant to break wind. Now, in the seems, nine... seems quite a long journey from pedere to fist. Yeah, well, there's a lot of a lot of things where P's and F's transpose in in uh, kind of uh, okay history. Euphony. Yeah, anyway, there was another thing in the 19th century: fist or feist or feist were American dialect terms for a small dog. And this does appear to be related to the idea that such dogs were likely to um, be punched, blow off a lot. Um, <laughs> well, punch is is a whole thing which I looked into and I thought, I, I'm not going to go down there because it will make it too long. But let's digress momentarily into that, is that, it's that the fist in the, in the hand sense, the uh, etymology of that comes all the way back from another one of these words that actually had P's instead of F's in it, which originally comes from sort of very old Germanic and then back through the preceding languages into, well, Greek and Latin and Sanskrit and all these kind of things. And it originally started off with a thing meaning five. Okay. Because you think, obviously, a hand or a fist has got five fingers on it. But that's got two of the same letters. That's... That's going to be the same origin for words like funf in German and pump in Welsh, which okay. are all the words for five. But also for punch, not in the sense of hitting somebody, but in the sense of the drink, which I think came from a Sanskrit pancha or something like that, oh, because okay. it had five ingredients in it originally. And How about that? Punjab as well is the land of five rivers, is it? Or is it five lands? Or is it? Well, that's that's yeah. a nice one that still fits into there. Anyway, that's a, look that up. that's a nice little digression. But um, going back to the American full, uh, small dogs, the feist or feist, that is where we get the word feisty from. Oh, okay. Uh, because, you know, the small dogs are kind of ex aggressively excitable. So that's feisty. But... Going back to the, the fist bit in terms of hands, looking at related words in other languages, we've got the German word Faust, which also means fist. Now, of course, when you hear the word Faust, I think most people will think of it as a proper name, as in Goethe's Faust or Marlowe's Dr. Faustus and so on. Yeah. Stories of an intellectual scholar sells his soul to the devil. Derived from a real chap, 
Johann Georg Faust, or in his own time known as Fust, uh, who lived in Mainz in the 15th century, and he was a printer. Yes, you can <laughs> count on me to bring every second episode back to printing and typography and so on. He worked with Gutenberg. He also worked with a chap called Peter Schoeffer on a Psalter, which was one of the earliest printed works to also include musical notation. Now, as it happens, actually printing the musical notation as part of the, you know, with the text was too difficult. So, what year was this, by the way? This was 16th century. Uh, yeah, no, 15th century. Sorry, okay. 1457, something like that, I think. But just like with the, the rubricated in initials and the capitulums that I mentioned in an earlier episode, they just left a space for it and filled it in later by hand. And there's a nice photo from the Bodleian Library of their copy of this Mainz Psalter, published by, by Fust and Schoeffer, and we'll include a link to it in the show notes, in which you can see the printed text and the added music stave that was done later with the notes, and in the margin as a sort of reference mark drawing attention to a specific passage of the text, a hand-drawn hand pointing... <laughs> And the pointing hand as a reference marker has a long tradition of going back into scribal manuscripts. Apparently the Doomsday Book has got them. And in medieval texts, sometimes they're quite comical with these great long extended bendy forefingers. <laughs> uh, the general is familiar and is nodding and, and wagging his finger along. The longer sometimes the finger, the more important the point they're pointing at. <laughs> Just the further away from the margin it is. <laughs> they start, yeah, it's quite it's a, a page with a bigger margin. And you, yeah. yeah. And sometimes they're very decorative with detailed cuffs and so on. So, of course, it's a character that carried over into typographical form. So metal and wood type fonts often included them. And now digital fonts have got the character. There are code points for it pointing in different directions as part of the Unicode standard. But the point that I'm getting to is that, like so many printing characters, they've got several names. And the sort of official formal name for them is manicules, which is rather nice. Okay. Obviously, comes from, I think, Latin manicula, meaning a small hand. But what else are they commonly known as? Well, boringly, pointers, but also uh, fists. Oh. Oh, brings us full circle. <laughs> I see. Oh, I thought it was quite nice. I like that manicule changes hands from manicure. Yes. Oh, very good. Oh. Left to right. Yes, yeah. very good. Nice. Uh, that's a lovely romp through typography all the way through. Really nice to learn. Thank you. Let's go back and uh, give us your explanation from your choice of clue. Sure. My clue was haughty socialist embraces love having dropped ecstasy. The definition was haughty. The word socialist here stood for the uh, lightly mocking word meaning a socialist and that's lefty and it embraces love which means it includes a zero love being zero in tennis or an o so that gives you leofty or possibly lowefty well yeah well you put it wherever you like but it also tells you having dropped ecstasy and ecstasy is the letter e so you drop the e out of lefty you put an o in and you get lofty which means haughty General, over to you. You got something for us? Yes. Rather than picking lots of different words, I'm going to just stick with the beehives because I've got so many 
interesting beehive-related facts that uh, I figured, why bother trying to find facts about Pitta or, or other things? And I, I'll just carry on with what I know. That's fine. Sure. Question number one. How long does a honeybee live for? Mm. A honeybee. Um, my, my initial thought is probably not more than two years. And from there, I wonder, is it even one year? Is it even less than that? So I'm going to have a stab at one year. Right. I was thinking possibly slightly longer than that. I was thinking two or three. Okay. Well, slightly trick question because it does depend on the bee. Uh, you've got three different types of casts of bees. You've got your workers, <sighs> drones, and the queen. Okay. It also, however, depends on the time of year. So a worker bee in summer, which is the, the most common type of honeybee in summer, there's about 50,000 worker bees in a beehive, they live for about six weeks. Ooh. They live for three weeks in the hive. They don't fly. They do nursing duty and guard duty and that sort of stuff. And then they fly for three weeks and collect nectar and pollen and water and um, propolis, which is a sort of resin to gum things up. And then they die, more often than not, in a field, because that's where they spend most of their time. But over winter, they live for about six months. And it's because they don't fly. Their lifespan is linked to how much they fly. They just knacker themselves out going and collecting. Drones so it depends live... on when, when they, when when they, they hatch, hatch, as it were. Yes. Drones live for a bit longer. The entire purpose of a drone is to mate with the queen and then die. That, that's all they do. They don't collect anything. They, li they die literally after copulation uh, because they shoot out their penis into the queen with an audible pop. Um, there's hydrostatic pressure. <laughs> and that's, uh, that is so catastrophically disruptive that they then fall to the ground dead and the queen sort of hoiks it out with her back legs and then carries on flying and will mate with up to 20 or 30 drones in one flight so that's quite exciting and at the end of the season the worker bees will chuck all of the drones out of the hive anyway because they don't want drones over winter because they just eat honey and don't do anything else so they're literally pushed out the hive. yes and the queen bee will live for up to five years so, okay, so, sorry, so if we kind of average our average hours, <laughs> we, then, we're, then we're somewhere in the right region. Exactly, yeah, you're yeah. in the right ballpark, yes, within the correct order of magnitude, going back to what last year's, uh, <laughs> last, uh, last time's podcast was. So there we go, that is how long a bee lives, but this is honeybees we're talking about. Question number two then, how many honeybees does it take to make a one pound jar of honey? For the listeners listening on black and white radios, I'm holding one up here now. And... <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's the contribution of the entire colony, and it's all spun out. But assuming that the only thing that they did was make this particular jar of honey, rather than splitting it, but you get what I mean, right? Yeah. So uh, the life's work of how many bees? bees in a colony, didn't you? Oh, well done. He's paying attention. Now I'm picturing TV shows where presenter goes and visits a beekeeper, and they pull out a, a sheet from a beehive, and it's they're scraping all the the honey off of the comb. That seems to me there's a reasonable amount of honey in there. So a one pound jar doesn't seem like a huge amount of honey that could be produced by a hive's worth of bees. So they might produce, I don't know, say 10 or 20 or 30 jars of honey per hive, something in that ballpark. So, um, so there's going to be some dividing of 50,000 by x where x is the number of jars of honey let's say i'll go 500 okay 500 bees to make one jar of honey 
And now Dave, all... Dave, do you want to go higher or lower? <laughs> well, you see, this is I always let him go first. <laughs> I've noticed <laughs> this. Yeah, I, I have no idea about these kind of things. I mean, at least you'd you'd remember the number for the total in the in the eye, which which I, I'd obviously I not just, remembered or not not heard in the first place. Just wasn't listening. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you can listen back to the podcast later and find out. <laughs> um, I would say perhaps the amount produced is fewer jars than Void thought it was, and therefore perhaps bump a slightly higher number for the number of bees. So if he said 500, I'll, I'll go for 1,000. Okay. Well, oh, it's no fun saying in the same order of magnitude. We've had plenty of other other quizzes where where you know you've said uh, you said a mile and I've said a meter and, uh, yeah, and it turned true. out to be turned out to be a centimeter. So uh, you know, well, you're you're actually pretty close. I have three beehives. I got about three hundred and fifty pounds of honey in total from all of them last year, but about three quarters of that was from one hive which was astonishingly good. Mm. Even though they're six feet away from each other, this hive is good, that hive is le- much less good. It's genetics or something. Not sure. Um, so it's about 800 Someone should worth. do some scientific ex- investigation into why that happens. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I, that'll just kill, kill the queen from one hive and then put a frame of eggs in from the other hive and then off we right. go with that one. Yeah. Uh, which, 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 is, um, which is how they make a new queen. But yeah, it's about 800 bees worth. They make about half a teaspoon over their lifetime. Oh, so we we kind of framed it either side then. Yeah, so consider yourself averagely good. Uh, by by which point, <laughs> I mean good when you average yourselves. Although that's a terrifying image. wisdom of crowds, as as yeah. you, the general, said in the last episode. <laughs> did I? Oh. Yes, you did. Yes. Well, oh yes, of course. I, I, now, I, now I understand what you mean. There you go. But it could be more. It could be less. It depends on how near they are to forage and how keen the bees are on it and how keen the beekeepers take stuff away. Mm-hmm. So the final question I have is how many different species of bee are there in the UK? And now I'm not just talking about honeybees, I'm talking about bees. Oh, in the UK. That's you can do it in the world as well if you want. It's going Mason to be a large bee. number, isn't it? Carpenter bee. Okay, come on, Dave's going Carter first this time. Oh, Void's going to try and name all the species of bees <laughs> that he knows. <laughs> While he's while he's jotting them down on a piece of paper, I'm well. Yeah, there are going to be a very small number of ones that are familiar to everybody, and then there are going to be lots of other ones that are obscure and weird. Well done. Uh, so I, I, I'm tempted to kind of start with the sort of numbers that we offered to the previous question. I think are there are there several hundred species of bees? So okay. I, I I think I'll go with the answer that Void gave to the previous question and say five hundred. Okay. So, Void, are you going to go with five or 5,000? White-tailed bumblebee. I I suspect five Um, is probably not a good choice. Given that Void has already listed more than five species of bee. 500 seems a lot to me in the UK, certainly. So I I would come down. I'll go for 184. (laughs) 184. Let me just let me just get out the fauna of Britain and check. So there are about 280 species okay. of bee in the UK. There's one species of honeybee. There are about 28 species of bumblebee. And there are about 250, 260 
other bees. And as you say, they say carpenter bees, masonry bees, solitary bees. Solitary bees is a bit of a misnomer. It's because they make nests on their own. They're not social insects. Mm-hmm. But they can all make nests in the same place. Right. So you can see a large number of solitary bees all in the same place. They just don't talk to their neighbours much. Well, they just don't. They, they don't nest with their neighbours much. Right. So, that's so it's like an, it's like an apartment block where there's lots yeah. of people, but they're all in their own flats. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And around the world, there's about twenty thousand species of bee. Um, yeah. About two hundred and eighty species of bumblebee around the world. Interestingly, none in South Africa. They've never crossed the Sahara, which is which is really cool. Hang on. So- South Africa, the country, or, or, or Southern sorry, Africa? Southern Africa, yeah. But the reason I wanted to say this is because um, it, it takes me back to something I was going to mention earlier, but then decided I would do the quiz about these as well. Lots of people think when they're helping save the bees, the, the best thing to do is to get a beehive. Um, because honeybees are in trouble, right? And we need to save the bees. Honeybees are managed livestock, um, mm. like chickens and cows and things like that. You can buy them. You can you can put them in a wooden box in your garden or on an allotment or something like that and farm them for honey and sell the honey, which is what I do. Um, they're not the bees in trouble. The number of honey beehives has increased since the war. It's all of the other 279 or have many species of bee in the UK that are in trouble. And actually, the worst thing you can do if you want to help the bees is to get a beehive with 50,000 bees in it, which will go and chomp through that many pounds of honey and pollen every year. What you should be doing is making your garden attractive um, to the natural ones. Attractive to the natural ones, so by planting flowers, but also leaving little piles of logs and bits of leaves and things like that, because that's where the bumblebees and the solitary bees will go to nest. Uh, By tidying up your garden and making it absolutely beautiful, you're denying the nesting places for all of these different bees. You can get your little bee hotels, which you see on the internet, and you can Mm. put those up, and they provide space for solitary bees. They're great as long as they're good ones. Um, and yeah, we have one in our garden which has never shown any signs of ever having had a bee in it. <laughs> How long have you had it there for? Uh, a few years. Okay, try moving it, put it somewhere else. It may be yeah. that they don't like that particular location. Yeah. It's, nothing is ever straightforward. It's never as simple as it sounds. Um, but yeah, if you, if you want to help the bees, don't get a beehive. Make your garden scruffy. Plant lots of flowers. Plant flowers which flower all the way through the year. Lots of different shapes of flowers. Um, that's the best way to help the bees. Oh, and don't use insecticides. <laughs> <laughs> On the subject, as you in passing mentioned, something being about the size of two fists worth mm. of space. Uh, do you know the old English words for two hands cupped together and for the amount of space that is formed oh, by two hands cupped together? It's going to be the equivalent of a bushel, isn't it? Or a, a, a lumpful or a metric twoggin or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they are very much of those kinds of words, yes. Void? Void? No, I've got nothing. Um, a Yepsen, Y-E-P-S-E-N, is the bowl shape you get when you cup your hands together. And a Galpen, G-O-W-P-E-N, is the the volume of space cupped in those in the, that that area. I think so, I've heard Galpen oh, before, but I would I, gi- I give you uh, one one Galpen a grain in exchange for your jar honey or <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Although looking it up I see it's from Scotland, so it's, that's obviously somebody had recently moved there from Sussex. <laughs> yeah, got the wrong accent. <laughs> I like cool. that word. Galpen. I shall try and bring that into 
I'll, I'll try and write it in my PhD thesis. You, use like it that. in the paper, yes. Yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> Toba- tobacco plants were cultivated in one gope and a vagar. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. This reminds me of just just talking about picking words from one source and inserting them in another. <laughs> reminds me of the cricket commentator Kevin Hand, who commentates on Middlesex matches. And I, I follow Middlesex, so I listen to Kevin quite often during the summers. And one year he was at Lords, and they were putting up some information on the digital school board. And they put up a picture of Kevin on the school board saying, your commentator is Kevin Hand. Except they managed to put up a picture, not of Kevin Hand, the cricket commentator, but of Kevin Hand, the uh, astrophysicist who works at NASA <laughs> specialising in exobiology. Nice. And funnily enough, they're both Kevin P. Hands. And so I, I followed the other Kevin P. Hand on Twitter, because he talks about interesting astro stuff. And they got into a little bit of a conversation because obviously Kevin told Kevin about this mix-up and they both found mm. it quite amusing. And huh. scientist Kevin started saying, ah, oh, I'm going to need to find some cricket terminology to slip into one of my presentations. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he ever has done that yet. Very good. Okay, folks, I think it's time to wrap up. Thanks for listening. Show notes, as always, will be at offgrid.tlmb.net. We're both still reachable on Twitter, where I'm at Skirwingle. And I'll also suggest you have a look at dtw42.tumblr.com, where I've got a few blog posts, including at least one about all that printing and typography stuff I seem to be so obsessed with, and at least one about crosswords. Hey. And I'm at the void TLMB on Twitter. And you can check out my blog, tlmb.net slash blog for crosswordy type stuff. Yeah, that'll do. General, what do you want to tell us about? What do I want to tell you about? I don't know. I'll just say thank you very much indeed. But have a look at the other blogs and you'll be able to probably get a little bit more gen about who I am. And if you want to find out more about bees, have a look at the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. They do fabulous work. Yeah, and Dave Goulson's books, he runs it. His books are fabulous about the sort of things that we should be doing for our pollinators. Great, we'll put some links to that in the show notes. Yep, thanks again for helping us out. You are very welcome. See you all next time, folks. Bye-bye. That was Off Grid. As ever, if you enjoyed it, please tell a friend, give us a rating, give us a review. Hey, we had a review. Thanks, Chetka. Be more like Chetka, people. Leave us a review if you can, or a rating if you can't. We also have new listeners in Slovenia and Japan. Hello, folks. I went to Slovenia once, and... Boku wa sanpun kam hiro ni naritai desu. Those two things are not connected. Thank you to Steerbike for our puzzle this episode, and thank you to Petrudi for our fabulous theme tune. See you all next time, folks. Bye-bye. Maybe next time I'll ask you questions about what I don't know.